Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places a dive in scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 403 is recorded live May 2nd, 2019. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where my robotic season is coming to an end. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, thank you. And it was good to have gotten back into the water last week. Oh, yeah. I, I saw that, that you had uh, found a uh, a body of water enough to submerge yourself in. How'd that go? Uh, it went very well. We didn't have quite the attendance we did last time, uh, but uh, we did have some newbies out there. We had uh, 10 new people doing diving, and we had a couple of the older people, older members, uh, in the deep run, just getting, uh, seeing how much our suits shrank over the winter. <laughs> suits, and uh, how about how about some of the seams? Was there, was there any anybody discovered leaks they didn't think they had? Um, actually, yeah, we had... Um, one individual trying out a dry suit and was uh, getting used to it and had some leaks. Better to be found there than when you're yes. 90 feet down in cold water. Yeah, that's that's something. I, I wish I had been able to make it because that's what I need to do. I, I've got a, a pesky leak, and I, I have a feeling it's the inflator valve. Oh. Uh, yeah, right right there. And, and it's one of those things you can't tell – is it condensation or something else? Because it's, it's like only isolated that one spot, but it's not quite enough to really say that you're you're leaking. But I think that's how all leaks start is you don't believe them at first until you're soaked. I don't know. I, I, I get mine, but mine's always at the same. It's in the uh, relief valve in the arm. Uh-huh. Oh, anymore I get to, I just shut the damn thing. And then as I burp it, you know, you're going down with your arm up. I think mm-hmm. I get a little seepage. You know how once it's got there, it just sort of wicks around. Yeah. But uh, nothing uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank everybody who is in the chat room. We have the traditional diehards. We have Eric and Derek in there. And I'm sure we'll have a few sneak on in as we get going. Uh, this first article we have is a follow-up. It's one that we had talked about. If you remember all those billions of dollars that were supposed to be in that shipwreck, the South Korean executives behind that claim have been jailed on the Russian shipwreck scam. Three executives from a South Korean company have been jailed for lying that they had found a long-lost Russian warship filled with $133 billion worth of gold. The Seoul-based firm Chanel Group was uh, had made the stunning announcement in July that unearthed the Dmitry Donosky, which had been scuttled in 1905. The Russian Imperial Navy cruiser was long rumored to have sunken with a treasure trove of gold coins and gold bars. More than $7 million poured in from investors, but the uh, story began to unravel, prompting a fraud investigation. On Wednesday, a South Korean court ruled that the claims were bogus. Uh, the group's vice chairman, 
only identified by his last name, Kim, was sentenced to five years behind bars, while the group's former head, identified as Ryu, another accomplice, received two- and four-year sentences. The responsibility for the claim is very heavy, given the method and scale as a case where they swindled many unspecified people and took huge gains, said Judge Cho Yomi. The Chanel Group, which had since fold, is also accused of artificially boosting stock prices and enticing investors to buy into a new cryptocurrency it was developing. The company issued a salvage claim in the wreck, initially claiming the gold was worth about $130 billion, but it's stated the amount of gold is actually worth uh, maybe $7 billion, forcing them to walk back the value eventually to only $1 million. The company also repeatedly promised to produce evidence of the cargo haul, but never did. The 5,800-ton vessel was built in St. Petersburg and launched in 1883. The ship was badly damaged in a battle to Tsunami in May of 1905 before it was rumored to be scuttled by its captain off the coast of South Korea Island so the Japanese couldn't capture the gold. <clears throat> it's, it's sort of sad in a way because it would have run really cool for the recovery aspect. Oh, yeah. If it was true, it would have been great, which yeah. that's what they're counting on is people to get excited about the history of the nostalgia and then just the plain value of it. Uh, as, as I was talking about before the show, I I think that they were small-time crooks and they didn't anticipate it getting as big as quick as it could and it just blew out of control, you know. Uh you, you start big, talking. You start talking. One hundred and thirty billion dollars. People get interested. Yeah. And I looked yeah. at the. I enhanced that picture of the boat of the ship. Mm-hmm. That in itself, if they scuttled it and it, you know, they didn't do any blowing itself up, but just scuttled it, that would be a hell of an interesting wreck. Yeah. That it's really interesting. Looks like uh, one of the U.S. Liberty ships. You know, kind of. They all all ships at that time had that similar thing. They had the. You know the the uh, guns along the side in that horizontal turret, and the, and the interesting is also those three crow's nests, the huge ones. Mm-hmm. If that went down nice, that would have been quite interesting. Yeah, well, they found that the wreck has actually been found. So, uh, but but we've never seen the pictures of the condition. Well, in that in that photo off to the right, is that a photo of that vessel? Well, I have one straight ahead, and I believe that's the vessel. Two stacks on it. Yeah. Three, three crows and two stacks. Either way, it, it, it was interesting. I'd like to have seen some more pictures of it on the bottom, but uh, now that it's not worth $130 billion, you're probably not going to see much more of it. Yeah, because it was fairly deep. Um, let me see. I'm going back to the original article. Uh, when things went down, the legend that went down with gold coins and 5,000 boxes of gold bars. Uh, they said they would give 10% of its cut to the Korean infrastructure projects, another 10% to a new cryptocurrency system. There was a video posted of the wreck, but it has since been moved. Yeah, I bet. All right, you made me have to look for it myself. <laughs> Okay, I got the video. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not going to attempt to look at the video. <laughs> well, I'm going to save it and look at it a little later. Yeah. Whoa. Uh, Visibility is not too bad. <laughs> Do they have the depth? 
I, I want to say it was it was like ROV depth. It was too. It wasn't in uh, normal diveable depths. Well, I'll go back to it later. Uh, eyeball that one. That's interesting. Yeah. And then this next article was from uh, February 2018th in the Undercurrent magazine, which if you haven't uh, subscribed to that, that's one that you should. <clears throat> it says, uh, get your weights off first. The article talks about police have charged two diving instructors working at a dive resort in uh, Fifi Island, Thailand, with negligence leading to the death of a new trainee diver, Indian tourist Ash, who was on his first scuba trip ever. On December 30th, Ash lost his balance after his first dive when a small boat was unexpectedly rocked by a large wave. He fell overboard in the water, still wearing his nine-pound weight belt, which presumably was because he was inexperienced and not certified. He could not or did not know how to remove it. A Mr. Carrot, speaking on behalf of uh, Phi Phi Scuba Dive Center, told the, <laughs> I gotta be careful how I pronounce this, the Pucket News. Uh, where the incident occurred, the customer had returned to the boat and taken off his equipment. He was about to take off the weight belt when he fell overboard. Three people jumped in after him but could not locate him on the choppy surface, so three people went in with scuba gear to find him. It's standard practice in scuba diving that you get out of the water, you go to a spot where you can sit down and your scuba cylinder will be secured, then you loosen your shoulder and wrist straps to get out of the unit. The next step is to stand up, remove your weight belt. After that, you can get out of your wetsuit. Now, just... I don't know. Is that true? Um, normally, when I'm doing a boat dive, the weight belt is one of the first things that come off. In fact, sometimes it comes off in the water. Did I lose you, Mac? Maybe. Or did you hear me on that one or not? No, I didn't hear you anything. Oh, I'm sorry not... about that. Were you muted? Yeah, okay. It looks like it. Uh, uh, what I was saying is you generally, and depending on what the, the wave action is, Quite often, you get to the aft end of the boat. Somebody's there and said, "Give me your belt." Yeah, I mean, or that's your what, pouches. That's what we do. It would have to be very calm and easy to get in for me to get in, get up with a dive belt on. I'm, I'm not well, saying I would never do it, but it's not normal. Well, like on Bob's, we just lanyard off to the side of the boat, get yeah. rid of, you know, take off the BC. Duh! Then we hop yeah. on the boat and drag gear in. Yeah, and what Mac's talking about is uh, Bob Sweeney. Uh, he's got a Zodiac. And, you know, even though now he does have a ladder, in the early days of diving off it, it wasn't a ladder. You had to kind of uh, time it with uh, wave swells to launch yourself in. But you would do is you would, uh, there'd be a, a a clip, you know, a line and then a clip on it, and you'd clip off your uh, your BC. And then I would, uh, take off before I unhooked my BC, I would take my dive, my weight belt off. And then you would lift that over the side of the uh, Zodiac and you'd put it in. Uh, then you'd get out of your BC when you're and me, I'm plenty buoyant. So I would, uh, you know, then you're buoyant and you'd leave your fins on your mask on. You take the regulator off and then you kick to get in the boat or climb the ladder. Um, and that would be a similar routine on a, a regular boat with a dive platform, uh, the the advantage being is that somebody can get out on the platform many times and help you. So when they said here that they would get on the boat and take your gear off, um, that's a, that's a type of boat I haven't been on where I would feel that comfortable that 
uh, to climb up with all your gear because it, it can be quite a bit. Yeah, there. I'm, I'm assuming in Thailand you're talking about a little bit more waters than we have, and uh, maybe so. It says procedure wise, it was normal. It was impossible. It was this impossible five second window while removing his belt that he fell. And then here the the magazine undercurrent disagrees. We say hand up your weights as soon as you make contact with the dive boat if you can. Never take your regular out of mouth and take your mask off before you are safely on board. Get out of your weights, whether in a belt or an integrated pouch, as soon as you can, preferably before climbing out of your tank. Yeah, it, we it's the same thing we just said. We agree with him. Yeah, he said in the future, non-certified divers will probably not be allowed to sit on the outside facing side of the boat. Outside facing side of the boat. Yeah, okay. Without seeing the boat, I'm having a hard time visualizing what he's talking about. Uh, then this next one uh, was from September 2018. It says, problems with Sherwood Avid BC still continue. It says, the design problems the Sherwood Avid BC continue to plague divers. Unfortunate enough to own them, uh, we've drawn your attention before to potential disaster. The tank separating from the BC, uh, and they refer back to their September 2016 and September 2017 issues. Whereas the tank cam bands and most BCs are threaded through slots in the buoyancy cell, Sherwood designs both its Luna and Avid BCs with separate plastic mounting points that can, under certain certain circumstances, shear away, allowing a tank to part company with a diver with dramatic consequences. Clinger Disney wrote to Undercurrent in July about his 10-year-old Avid BC and sent us a picture that dramatically reveals the problem. Thankfully, it appears no fatalities so far reported have been attributed to this defect. Disney also made us privy to email between him and Mike Van Hosen of Sherwood Scuba, in which he made the offer to the retailer Scuba World, giving him a good price on a trade-in for replacement, meaning it cost Disney between $425 and $475. Disney declined. The similar story of Dennis Rounds doing a shore dive with uh, Roger Ray in Junction City, Oregon, near Wibley Island, Washington, in March, when they both of her tank came bands attachment broke at the same time. Ray tells it it uh, caused a dangerous situation when Rounds' regulator was pulled from her mouth and she was dragged underwater. Despite Ray's effort to keep her afloat, Rounds contacted Sherwood's tech department but never heard back. How long do you think a BC should last? Some of us are still successfully using other manufacturers' BCs we purchased 20 years ago. If you own a Sherwood BC or any other that does not secure the tank can ban by being threaded through slots in the buoyancy cell, we suggest you stop using it immediately. And this one, I assume, is also undercurrent? Yes. Uh, now, you just sent me the text. Uh, was there photos that went along with that? Uh, yeah, with the can back. Yeah, when the the way it threaded through the backpack, if mm-hmm. those plastic inserts broke, which the pictorial showed that they did, uh, you you lost that. And if you lost it, it's going to take your regulator with it. And if you're not expecting it, you're going to sell it. Why is something being ripped out of my mouth? Oh yeah, yeah. If you <laughs> if you lost that that portion, uh, and if it goes down and you're going up, I mean. Yeah, that could be a, a, a quite a challenge. But your buoyancy has now changed dramatically. True, and I mean, you know, it's possible that if you had your octopus clipped on to your to your BC, if you had your uh, SMGs, like I've rigged mine hooked to my BC, it's not going to go too far. It's gonna mm-hmm. it's gonna slip down, but it's going to certainly get my attention. Yeah, and 
back in the day, I have had my tank slip out of a backpack. And, you know, when it starts ripping out of your mouth, you realize, uh, like, something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And that, and that's uh, something that you should be doing is you have your gear serviced regularly, but also just inspect it. If you're starting to have seams or uh, something happen, and we've, we've had uh, even reputable name brand BCs, we've seen ev- events where the stitching wasn't done correct in one spot and it comes loose, but normally you take it back to the dive shop and they'll go and, and handle it uh, yeah. for you. And then uh, here's the third one from Undercurrent. This one is uh, regulator servicing. Do it every two years. And this is from the 2018 Undercurrent. Um, they say, are uh, in, in our today's regulators better than of old? We invertedly gave out-of-date information about regulator servicing. This is uh, referencing November 17th. Uh, well done, uh, Bradley Condo from Vail, Colorado, spotted that the latest raft regulations mainly need routine service every two years or 100 dives, despite some dive shops still claiming an annual requirement. We contacted regu- regulator manufacturers to get clarity. Mr. Corollis of Scuba Pro said the new policy is regulators should be maintained every two years or every hundred dives by a Scuba Pro technician. For intensive use, regulators should be visually inspected every six months, uh, filter, hose, mouthpiece, and leaks, and maintained every year. Mr. Emanuel Cabaret of uh, Aqualung told Undercurrent, your Aqualung regulator should be, undergo servicing at least every two years and visually inspected at least once a year by an Aqualung Specialist Center. Depending on the number of dives and utilization conditions, your regular may need to be serviced more often. If your regulator has suffered a serious shock, water entry into the regulator or leaking during pressurization, you should have the regulator serviced before reusing it. If the regulator is leased or used in chlorinated swimming pool or polluted environment, it must be serviced every six months. Swimming pool chlorine can cause chemical reaction and lead to rapid degradation. Aqualung does not specify the number of dives. Peter Greenwall of Apex Marine Equipment told Undercurrent their first stage should be serviced every two years and second stage should be inspected every year. To be on the safe side, many dive shops still suggest a full service every year. Uh, Mayor's SPA said it used to be one year or 100 dives, whichever comes first, but we recently went to two year or 200 dives with a visual inspection after one year or 100 dives. Atomic Aquatics said uh, Atomic Series 2 regulators should be serviced every two years or every 200 dives, and Series 3 regulators should be serviced every three years or 300 dives, whichever comes first. Atomic still uses a unique design that leaves the valve seat out of contact with the poppet when in storage and not under pressure. This avoids engraving the valve seat, which often reveals problems after the regulator is left unused for a period. So since most regulator problems seem to occur in the first dive after servicing, this extended period is not only good news for the pocketbook, but good news for hassle-free diving. I thought that was quite an interesting article, and they went to many sources to confirm what the standard appears to be now. And again, yeah, because- it's, it's how much do you use it, what are the conditions, and are you abusive, or is right. it abusive conditions? Makes right. sense. Well, it, for example, if you are in the water that has all that table salt added, and you take your gear and you just put it in your duffel bag and stick it in the garage in the corner and don't rinse it out. 
you may need to service it more than uh, what they're recommending. Well, even when we do the pool work, I wash my gear really well afterward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, chlorine, you know? it's, uh, it's going to break stuff down pretty quick. Yep. Uh, but I think part of this might be uh, competitive. You know, uh, from a manufacturer standpoint, it's a marketing thing to be able to say that our equipment's built up to a standard that it can go two years between servicing. So I'm sure what happened is they've all been engineering and improving, you know, the materials and the fit for years. But once one of your competitors says two years and the pressure was for the rest of them to certify for that, and they're probably more than up to it because it's, it's going to be a balance. Are you trusting uh, people who have your gear, have the, who've bought the gear to have it, to make their own judgment on when it should be serviced. And again, like to say, if you're if you're using it five times a year, six times a year, and you're maintaining it, you know, do you really want to have that done every year? Probably not. Again, usage, and you you know what your gear is. Mm-hmm. So yeah. a newbie may have an issue, but experienced divers, they know what they're subjecting the regulators to and should take appropriate action. Now, now what is concerning here? As they say, most regular problems seem to occur after the first dive after servicing. That's correct. That, that, uh, Isn't that, that true, though? Either it's tweaked a little bit, balancing of it is a little bit off. Uh, you when know, I've had I, issues, it's always that first dive I'm very, very much more careful yeah. of. Yeah, that, I mean, that's true. Uh, you know, what, did they set the intermediate pressure correct or at least to what you've become accustomed to diving? Uh, so, it, you know, after you've had your, your gear service, there's no shame in uh, doing a, a test dive uh, just to break it in to make sure everything's working correctly. Oh, yeah. And like I said, take it slow the first one. You got that yep. first, you know, 10 feet down, you're on a down line, hold on a little bit, and how's everything feel, guy? Yep. Yeah, if you cough and you spit your regulator parts into your hand, that's uh, not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, that's a bad indication right off the bat. Yeah. Uh, this next article is the world oldest scuba diver marks a hundred dive and was that Latchy? This is from the Cypress Mail. Uh, Does he look like me a little bit? A little, he, yeah, yeah. No, he's got more hair on the top than doesn't he? <laughs> Maybe a little. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm trying to figure out how to politely put it. Yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Very good. Very, nice diplomatic. Yeah, the try trying. Uh, it says the world's oldest scuba diver, ninety-five-year-old Ray Woolley, will celebrate a hundred dives this weekend. Woolley lives on Lamassol, has dived all over the world. He's particularly fond of diving in Lachey. For the last few years, most of my dives have been with Lachey Water Sports, and they all make it so easy for me. At my age, is great. Lachey is such a lovely place to dive. He told the Cypress Mail. His dive and Latchy have ranged from 10.2 meters to 47.1 meters over the years. Last year, Ray was catapulted in the spotlight when he broke his own Guinness World Record as the world's oldest scuba diver when he dove down 40.6 meters for 44 minutes in the well-known Zenobia shipwreck in, I was at Larnaca? And at the 95-year-old is a great example of healthy aging and fitness, though he has uh, to now accept his gear has been to put on the boat for him 
he can over climb down his equipment on his back. I'm not doing too badly, but as you get older, you have to be a bit more careful and sensible and take care of yourself. Willie reveals his newfound revels in his newfound fame, which has had to give him a special buzz. People often approach him to talk to him. So many people know me now. It's really nice. A few years ago, I couldn't believe something like this would happen to me. It's an honor to be able to promote healthy aging to everyone. And it's nice that he has people to help him give him, you know, give him that physical support and his gear. There's no reason not to. Yep. It says Ray is a World War II veteran who served in the Royal Navy and the SBS Special Force 281. After the war, he's a trained as a radio engineer whilst working for the British Foreign Office. He was posted to Cyprus in 1964. He's originally from Port Sunlight in the uh, rural peninsula in the UK. Started swimming as local swimming baths at age five. In Cyprus, he dives at the British Subaquatic Club, BSAC at RAF. Oh, and I'm not even going to pronounce that town. And began diving with Portland and uh, Wymouth British Subaquatic Club in 1960. I want to show I can do these things and make people understand that they can too. I don't necessarily mean diving, but keeping fit and healthy. Uh, he was also featured in an award-winning documentary film about his life, Life Begins at 90, which was filmed in Cyprus and highlights Ray's life. The, the film is competing at festivals around the world. Next, be shown upcoming prestigious 18 International Red Cross Film Festival be held in Varna, Bulgaria in June. I hope people like my film and it inspires them. Ray will turn 96 on August 28th, has no plans to slow down, has already begun traveling, traveled to Dubai and Australia this year, also intends on attending a family wedding in the UK. On June 6th, Ray will also be participating in making a D-Day landing at church's service. On Sunday night, I'll also take part in a dive at the Ekaratori, laying poppies in a wreath. He added that it appears he's the only member of the Limassol branch of the Royal British Legion who served in World War II as they're all getting on a bit. Does that mean old? Yes. Getting on a bit. So congratulations. Uh, man, he has a pretty nice setup there. Yep. Get out there and dive. I hope I'm I'm doing that and when I get to be that, anywhere close to that age. I second that motion. And then uh, Lions Club, you know, when you normally think of them, you think of Eyeglass. This particular time, the Naperville Lions Club is seeking donations of prescription masks to benefit Dive Heart Scuba, Dive Heart Scuba Therapy. Naperville Lions Club and Dive Heart have teamed up to help individuals with visual impairment to see better underwater. Lions and Dive Heart seek donations of prescription dive masks to help Dive Heart repurpose them for adaptive programs for divers who have visual impairments who might benefit from the prescription on the mask. Dive Heart has successfully paired adaptive divers and prescription masks in the past, and it's been amazing, says Jim Elliott, founder and president of Dive Heart. With the help of the Naperville Noons Lions, you can now donate your prescription mask while you drop off your unused eyeglasses. The Lions will collect the masks give them to Dive Heart, we'll get them to a visually impaired diver who can use the mask. For more information, the Naperville Noon Lions, you can visit NaperviilleNoonLions.org, and then you also can uh, visit Dive Heart at www.DiveHeart.org. Um, Elliot says he welcomes other scuba gear donations and most appreciative of all support. So that's pretty good. I hadn't thought about that, but that makes sense. 
it's a yeah. nice way for the uh, for the Lions Club to uh, extend uh, what they can do with uh, eyesight. Mm-hmm. And I I'm imagining I've I've I do contacts so I don't really worry about the prescription the mask but yeah when you're when you're done with them they when you get a new prescription you get the old one left over. Now don't most people. I've got an old script for one of my masks, mm-hmm. and when I get me a new one with a new script, hopefully, um, I'll do the same thing. I'll drop it off and uh, do that. Have the drop off here at the local library. Oh, excellent! Because don't most people just uh, you know replace the lens in their existing mask? I mean, the silicone. On, I mean, if you're going to get a new lens set, you might wind up getting a new mask. Oh, because sometimes they come right in the mask. Yeah. <clears throat> now, uh, is this the same Elliot that we know that was on here yep. several yep. years ago? Yep, the same Jim Elliot, which I keep saying we need to have back on. Uh, I'm bad. I need to. I've I've got a whole list of uh, interviews that we need to do. But now that robotic season is over, you can oh, finally cool. recover and recuperate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then we have uh, YC, YM. The, the YMCA's new scuba diving class are being offered an underwater experience. And this one I thought was a little bit unusual, um, only because I wasn't aware that the Y had anything to do with diving. Because I, I can remember, uh, what was it, about 15 years ago when they stopped uh, doing classes, having their own certification? Yeah, my first certification was YMCA. Yeah. Back in the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the, and that's the only reason I covered it, because we could be covering places offering new classes many times over, but in this particular case. Uh, yeah, you really don't hear that much about them, do you? No. Now that no, I think cause, back. Yeah, because it used to be, that's if you heard diving, it was YMCA. I think they were in the United States, like you had the British Subaquatic Club in the U.K., we had the YMCA was kind of the flag bearer for, for doing dive training. Yeah, because uh, you could do the YMCA, and mm-hmm. then you could, for a couple of shekels more, uh, do the basic petty scuba. So you could yeah. get dual search, but it was basically a YMCA course initially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you don't, now that you said that, that's, that's quite interesting. Where, where, what state is this? Oh, let's see. This is Richland Source. I'm going to say, is that, what are famous Richlands? It says Mansfield area. Why? So I am. Mansfield, Ohio. Got you down at the bottom. Yep. So it's a, it's Ohio area. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the quotes, they say, a lot of people like diving in Ohio. And yeah, there are actually places to dive here, but I like to travel. That was one of the quotes. Yeah, so uh, White Star Quarry is in Ohio. Yeah, I, you just don't you, don't you don't see much. It makes sense. I mean, the pools are there. Oh yeah. Uh, is it? Is this? And I think this is actually being put on by the Y. So maybe they've got their own instructor here. Don't know. Yeah, well, well, good. Glad to see you know, more places. Getting people interested in diving, the better. And then how's this for, uh, yeah, I, I wonder what kind of uh, health program this is covered under. Contactless ultrasonography scans of pregnant reef manta ray. 
Well, yeah, we but, talked about this, and I, I just wondered what medical program it was under. Yeah, designed, developed, and manufactured by IMV Imaging and field-tested in wild reef manta rays by scientists from the Manta Trust and Cambridge University Veterinary School, the DuoScan Go Oceanic can be taken to depths up to 30 meters for real-time scanning. Deborah Malcolm, UK, an international marketing manager, IMV Imaging, told the engineer via an email that the viable imagery can be attained by getting within 10 to 20 centimeters of the object. Once in position, the ultrasound can penetrate to a depth of 24 centimeters. So they're they're making it sound like you don't even have to come in contact with the animal. Well, I've got a picture down at the bottom. Have you seen it? They're doing something with some other animal. It looks like a long telescopic camera, mm-hmm. and they're on the bottom. Yeah, I, I see the picture. Ah. My, my concern is if you turn it up too much, does it cook them? I, and I know it doesn't. There's not enough energy in ultrasonic, but... Uh, it just kind of looks a little ominous with the uh, just that long tube, but it's probably focusing the waves. And you know, if, on people they'll use some sort of gel, but that's because air is a is a good insulator. Uh, but being in the water, the uh, it probably trans uh, transfers a little bit better. But you have to have something that here. I mean, it's it's sending the sounds in, and then they're coming back, so it somehow has to be able to measure them. Uh, yeah, if you didn't take a look at the pictorial, they're doing a uh, scan of a sea cucumber that's quite interesting. Yeah, I, They're doing I, uh, the, a visual of a person doing it, and at the same time, a shot of what it looked like on the scan. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting technology, Yeah, and I can see all sorts of uses for it for them. Maybe maybe this is the thing, is that do you just throw pregnant women in the pool and then you can do it that way? Uh, probably not exactly. <laughs> no, not like that. Then <laughs> you can see you can see my bedside manner wasn't enough for me. But you know, I'm by the same after. token, I wonder how this works out of the water. I don't know. I mean I think they're probably counting on the water to create that uh contact because we know that sound moves much, much better in the water than out of it. Oh, well, I was just looking at if this is portable as like it is, and you had that in an ambulance, you know, accident scene. Mm-hmm. If it worked as well as it, this seems to work, that could be quite uh, useful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure somebody will figure out how to put it to its best and most profitable value. <laughs> well, I keep saying combat medic, combat medic. Something like this, that might be useful, extremely useful mm-hmm. field. Yeah. So that one is from the engineer.co.uk. And we'll have all these links in their show notes. And then Hoons may face jail for damaging historic shipwreck during Beach Joyride. A joyride along a non four wheel drive beach in a stolen vehicle has ended in irreparably irreparable damage to a century-old shipwreck in New South Wales' mid-north coast. The perpetrators mowed down the prominent visible part of Buster, a 310-ton timber, was that a Barquin? Barquin? I'm not, it's one of those things, if I heard it, I could pronounce it. This is the most buried deep, mostly buried deep beneath the sand. 
early morning walkers along Ulgulaga's main beach were furious to find two pieces of the treasured wreck broken from the main structure. It's pretty devastating news, uh, being such a large part of its local history and maritime history, said Sam Newman. The Canadian-built 39-meter vessel has been a fixture on the main beach for tourists and locals since it washed ashore in 1893. Protruding parts serve as signposts for a buried wreck, which is only fully exposed during major storms every few years. Mr. Newman said it's now difficult find. Police have publicly appeared for information about the group of people who drove a stolen black Mitsubishi Pajero onto the beach Monday night. The car was found abandoned in a nearby village. Uh, jail time's big fine for damaging relics. NSW police Coffs Harbor city council and the office of environmental and heritage are continuing to investigate incidents, which could lead to some very serious penalties. The historic shipwreck acts of 1976 states, those who damage protected shipwrecks face up to five years in jail and a fine of $21,000. Because it's situated low tide mark shipwrecks like Buster fall in the Commonwealth, jurisdiction, whereas state laws cover wrecks inside shelter bays and rivers. OEH maritime archaeologist Brad Duncan said the penalties are a big incentive not to damage or disturb maritime relics. Dr. Duncan has conducted research at a site when it has been fully exposed, which was in 2012, to help create 3D models assist in tracking the state of the wreck. Do you see the photo showing what it looked like originally versus now? What they were, yeah. Plus the actual photo of a boat they believe looked just like it. That's below it. Yeah. It's fortunate that Mother Nature, though, uh, doesn't apply to her. She has some jurisdiction. She, she, she has her own mind, and she wasn't. She doesn't care about your. She's got her own to deal with. Yep. It's it's been there what over a hundred years. So uh, I, I know it's a pristine shipwreck, though. Yeah. But <laughs> is this? But isn't this kind of like uh, when somebody breaks into a bank and then you're upset that they scratched the door? I mean, it's like, I doubt that the people who are joyriding and vandalizing all around that this is, you know, uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't think they're going to get far with this. It just gives them something more to charge them when they find them, but they already broke the law to begin with. Yeah. Oh, crap. I just closed my other article. Uh, well, what'd you do that for? I'm well, darn. My, my fingers aren't aren't working correctly, I guess. Uh, and this one was the Waves Uncover Infamous Shipwreck uh, from the 1919 that was tied to mutiny. Uh, seashores are notorious for being the bearers of gifts relinquished from the sea, which often tantalize clues of historic events that happened out in the wide blue ocean. When reports came in of a 10-inch beams emerging from the sandy beach in Surf City on April 22, 2019, authorities were quick to identify them as the remains of the William H. Sumner, a century-old shipwreck. The announcement came in the form of a post to the town's official Facebook page, Town of Surf City. They stated, this afternoon we see the remains of the William H. Sumner, which is about 150 yards north of old Binnacle Bills Pier in Surf City. According to the Charlotte Observers, the beam's reappearance is owed to a combination of strong winds and waves. Interestingly enough, the town added 
that this is actually a fairly regular occurrence, saying that their Facebook post, it usually uncovers once every or twice a year. The photos posted the beams jutting out of sand display when the treasurer realty calls a 28 by 11 piece of deck of the William Sumner. While in transit to New York City from Puerto Rico, the vessel ran aground the vicinity of Surf City, putting an end to any future hopes of being sailed again, according to WECT. The three-masted schooner was carrying mahogany phosphate rock from the West Indies to New York. Wrightsville Beach Magazine reported in 2010 that the evidence that had come to light indicating the ship's captain may have been murdered by his crew. Uh, the skipper's name was Robert E. Cochran, 24-year-old and hailing from Bath, Maine, the rookie captain was accompanied by a crew of eight who allegedly mutinied against and killed their young captain. After careful analysis of evidence, investigators concluded the mutiny was triggered by Cochrane's unwillingness to do anything about increasingly low food supplies. In the same report, there was strong evidence he suggested that Cochrane was murdered. Evidence was directly contradicted by a story provided by his first mate, Charles Lacey. When Lacey first reported the incident at roughly 12 p.m. the following day, the wreckage, he told authorities the vessel would get caught in strong currents, which took them towards the shoal of Topsail Inlet, leading the ship to run aground on the sandbar. The captain was so stricken with a spare clean Lacey that he took his own life by shooting himself that morning. However, according to Wrightsville Beach Magazine, when investigators started to comb through the evidence, they began to question Lacey's account of the captain's supposed suicide. Report states that two separate wounds found in the captain's body, his right earlobe, had been shot away and a bullet pierced his head between his temples. There's no powder marks on his face, which more, they also uncovered several personal letters written by captain, none of which seemed to suggest he was suffering from depression or any type of mental anguish which would lead him to take his own life. Looks pretty suspicious to me. Yeah. He only shot himself twice. What are you talking about? Yeah, and they go on. So if you want to read more about the story, I mean, there's all there's there's always something <coughs> interesting to cover. Uh, let's see, and then we have eerie coincidence is Illawarra shipwreck makes a rare appearance after beer being named in its honor. A beer company has an eerie coincidence after a ship that sank in 1898 was honored with an ale named after it, revealed itself to swimmers in the New South Wales. South Coast. Coal Coast Brewing Company owner Kelly Carey was so captivated by the story of the brig aiming her sinking off the coast while traveling from Wollongong to Sydney more than 120 years ago, she named the Pale Ale after it. She did not expect a ship to make a rare appearance to commemorate the occasion. The Amy sank off the coast of Thirol after being struck by gale force winds, killing everybody on board and now lies in the ocean floor's shallow waters about 180 meters from shore. I have friends who surfed over it, and they noticed it recently. I've heard of it exposed, and I had a new camera, and I was playing with and thought I'd take my gear over there. And look, because it's four to five meters of water. While the official record states eight people died when the Amy sank, Miss Carey's especially interested in two that are not listed. At the inquest, there are three eyewitness accounts of seeing a woman standing in the bow, the bow holding a child. After all the investigations I've done, I can't find any record of him except for wife and child, the captain, who are getting a ride with him up to Sydney, and then the ship went down. They're not in the manifest, so they're not registered as part of the dead. She named her beer Ode to Amy to put a woman on the logo as a nod to the, uh, nod to the story. 
She's been naming other beers after Illawarra history and after walking the beaches of northern Illawarra and occasionally collecting pieces of shipwreck that washed up on the shore. And she said she was hooked by maritime stories. So I wonder if what, what the beer tastes like. Salty, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I think if you're, if you're a local brewery and, you know, nothing like naming it after local items, but. The uh, picture of the uh, painting mm-hmm. on her, with the ship on her side, that's really interesting. That's a nice picture. Yeah. yeah it looked like that was a bad day. Uh, yeah. Especially for those on board. Now, would that be normal? Um, so if, if you brought, like, if you're the captain and you brought your family with you, would they be on the manifest or not? I wouldn't think they'd be on the manifest, but if you had a crew list. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe a paperwork error that they didn't get associated with the, the same I, I don't know if you're a bus driver and your your kids are on the bus with you. Are you going to you know make a list of them? I, I don't so. No, but I mean, wouldn't somebody else have known? Or is it just historically now we don't recognize, but maybe people at the time did? I don't yeah. know. And then how about this for some potentially cool scuba gear? Um, let's see. This one was from Derek. Derek uh, sent me a link to it a little bit earlier in the day. And this is dark water vision. And uh, what this looks like, if you just imagine a very large set of now almost like it looks like a vr headset yeah and uh it looks like it's attaching onto uh at least in the photo it's a commercial diver's mask uh yes no ts i think yeah it says divers will be able to see through dark tannin stained and particulate heavy waters in real time without having to displace water the dark vision product line has user-friendly and innovative solution for divers who need to safely and effectively search for work in the dark and turbid water conditions. Darkwater vision systems easily affects the most popular full-face mask and commercial dive helmets. Some practical applications of darkwater vision technology include, and then a list of all the things you could imagine. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I, I would like to try it and see. It uh, looks interesting, and I think commercial... Well, you look at the applications they have down here, yeah. public safety in both commercial, and that's that's true. Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not sure how effective it is for uh, pipeline inspection and welding, but uh, inspection probably not a bad deal. But I just wonder if you could also hook that up to a camera. Yeah, well, oh, that'd be that'd be cool. Maybe have an ROV with with that on it. You have a a regular camera and then one with a filter applied because. At least what they're showing in there, like the version showing the tannins, I mean, that's quite a dramatic difference. Oh, yes, it is. Yeah. So uh, $1,200 from what I understand. So, I mean, it seems to be pretty reasonable for what what it's got going for it. Oh, I just clicked on one of the little links here for the products. And that's quite interesting because it gives you uh, a setup that if you did look like you're having an ROV, you could put that on it. Uh, there's a, monog- a single vision one that fits hats, and it looks like a surface monitor. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is quite interesting. Battery life average is four hours. Yeah. 
So certain conditions, it probably would work out pretty well. Yeah, one was called the hammerhead vision, lamprey, DVR system, and the stingray DVR system. Oh, good branding. (laughs) It'd be be neat to look at. And then the town they're in, Clearwater, Florida. If it's clear water, you wouldn't need it. (laughs) So that does it for Scuba in the News. Yeah, Derek says he's going to have to try some of the beer. You have to let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. So, yeah, I'm I'm finally getting out of the depths of robotics. The the students did great. They made it through. Uh, you know, they they qualified for Worlds after state and uh, had a little bit of a rough start, uh, some challenges, uh, and they lost the first three matches. But then they won the next seven in a row, which was enough to get them into the uh, eliminations, where they unfortunately couldn't make it out of the quarterfinals. But that's still pretty good. You know, to make it yes, all the way to the worlds and into the quarterfinals, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and just enough time to start planning for next year. But I'm I'm looking forward to getting. Uh, I got to find all my gear now, get it all back together, and I want to get in the water here pretty soon. Well, I noticed the uh, buoy is offshore of the Cook plant in the neighborhood oh, yeah. of Max Rec. I thought mm-hmm. it was interesting that the air temperature and the surface water were almost the same, forty three yeah. degrees. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it uh, right now. It, the uh, water temperature is showing. Well, let me hit refresh. Maybe I need to do that. It was 43.2 was the water temperature. Oh, I hit refresh now. It's going to be slow. Why did I do that? Come on. Oh, no. Yeah, it's going away. Um, and while it's loading up, I was noticing that almost all the uh, – uh, sensors on the string were showing about the same temperature, so it doesn't appear that there's a thermocline yet. Yeah, I think you have to have heat to have a thermocline. <laughs> uh, oh, it just loaded. Oh, here it is. Uh, so, so the uh, water temperature is forty three point two Fahrenheit. Air temperature is forty two point five Fahrenheit. Uh, and then when you start going down. At three feet or one meter is 43.2 Fahrenheit. 10 feet is 43.1. 16 is 43.0. 56 is 42.9. I mean, that is like, you know, not even a, a, just a little over a quarter of a degree difference from top to bottom. Yeah. Uh, It'd be interesting if they had some way of measuring. Measuring what? Clear water clarity with us. Well, you can always have a turbidity aspect. Yeah, but it would only be a surface one. Yeah. So, but it's nice. I it, are we just that late this year, or they get the buoy in early? I'm I'm trying to remember when they've had it. It's May, so it's about time. It's about time. Goodness. Yeah, I didn't check to see what the other buoys if they were in up in South Haven or past South Haven and down by Michigan City. Yeah. Yeah, I, d- I didn't bother looking. This is the one I care about, at least for right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and there actually, you said that there's the. Um, I did. If you zoom out in the map, go a little bit farther down the page. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can see all the blue markers are buoys that are working. Ah. So the South Haven buoy and the Michigan City buoy are both live. 
along with the North Chicago, the Waukegan, and the Kenosha buoys are all online. They're all out. Yeah, they're all out there. Somebody had a busy week. Yeah, they got them all out. So has anybody been getting any diving and had the pool over the weekend? Uh, Did any of those divers get in the open water, or is it just uh, mostly pool work? Mostly pool work, as I understand. I know Bob has been uh, preparing his vehicle for his uh, Alaskan trek. Trek. Uh, You've got what uh, the wrecking crew meeting greet up in Gilboa. That's coming up pretty quick. Yeah, it should be pretty soon here. I have it in my other calendar, but I don't have it here. Yeah. Uh, probably do. Yeah. So I mean, we're in May, so that's it's a good. Uh, if you're really watching the weather and can get out at a moment's notice, you should be able to get on. Now, I've been noticing a lot of fog recently in about the last week and a half. Yeah. In fact, tonight the fog was it was creeping in as I was heading home. Yeah, I think May twenty fourth, twenty five, twenty six is the Gilboa Open Water meet and greet. Okay. And say open war, but meet and greet at Gilboa. Yep. Great Lakes Wrecking Crew. Do you have Do you have any uh, safety stories for this week? Well, I have one item. It's called Experience Matters. And I'll go ahead and go through this. Uh, there is no substitute for a good dive buddy and thorough gear check prior to your dive. If something should go wrong, responsible diving or buddy diving can help mitigate a problem. After reading two alert diver articles, recent ones, one by a woman who saved her husband in Cozumel, the other about how the simple act of saying some wise words may have saved another diver's life. I was reminded of a story of my own. The incident occurred many years ago, and some details are lost, but the memory of what I did to save my future husband, Buddy, is still clear. I learned to dive in Seattle, Washington in 1978, Dry suits were starting to become the norm rather than the exception in cold water. Over the next 20 years, I did several hundred dives with at least half of them in cold water in the Pacific Northwest. I learned a lot about challenging conditions such as deep depths, strong currents, long surface swims to and from the shore. I also earned my advanced and rescue certifications. When I met my future husband, Mac, in 2004... He had been certified for about a decade, but had only dived or dove on vacations in the tropics. At the time of the incident, he had made about 50 dives. Although he is very comfortable in the water and can snorkel for hours, the first dive of each annual trip was generally a refresher dive for him. First time we dived together, I knew none of this. I'd been diving weekly as a volunteer in the cold water tank at the Seattle Aquarium. Mac had not been diving in a year or so. In 2007, we were in Belize on a sailing charter with three other couples. We spent most of our time in the water snorkeling. It was so easy just to jump off the boat, enjoy the abundance of beautiful reef life in the shallow water. We decided to go diving for a day with another couple after we found out they were very experienced divers. So we found a small local dive operator. I don't recall what led us to choose that particular business, but it was likely they were the closest or probably the only ones where we were anchored at the time. On the morning of the dive, two young dive guides came alongside our sailboat in a small boat stocked with rental gear and not much else. The four of us got into the boat and we took off to the reef. Guides helped us into our dive gear. All seemed well. We rolled back off the boat, started down. 
I had no trouble descending and went faster than Mac, confident he was okay. I watched him as I neared the bottom at 50 feet. He approached me and settled on the bottom. His eyes were wide with question and alarm as he showed me his air pressure gauge. With each breath, the needle swung widely back and forth. <laughs> I knew immediately what was wrong. I reached behind him, opened his tank valve, allowing the full air flow into the regulator. I held him in front of me and watched his face for signs as he took several deep, full breaths. He calmed down. I gave him the okay signal, returned the sign. We joined the other divers, completed the rest of the dive without incident, although I remained really close and watchful. Mac had had no idea it had been wrong, only that he could not get a full breath from his regulator. He was getting just enough air to think it was okay to continue descending. But after a time, he got to me, he was feeling lightheaded and panicked. He did not know after the dive that the swinging needle in the air gauge met. As we talked it later, neither of us could remember being taught in our dive classes that the swinging needle means the tank valve is not fully open. I had learned it at some point in my experience, though I don't remember when. Max said he saw me put my arms around his neck, look in his eyes, and he suddenly felt better and could breathe normally. Now, that was a romantic thought, but it's not even close to reality. Back on the boat, we realized they had opened the valve enough to check the tank pressure, but not had closed it fully or reopened it when we geared up. I nearly lost my future husband and learned several valuable lessons about my role as a dive buddy, especially as a more experienced one. Number one, be accountable for your gear. Check its operation before you enter the water, whether it's your own gear or rental. I knew to do this, but had still assumed the dive operators had checked everything. Though they have a major interest in keeping clients safe, dive operators still make mistakes. So check all gear, yours and your buddies, before getting in the water. This was not the only time we've had rental gear that wasn't fully functional. It's your life at stake, not theirs. Number two. Always vet your dive operator. We hired relatively inexperienced dive operators and assumed they knew what they were doing. In the remote area where we were, we did not have a lot of choices, but being more aware would have kept us safer even with the same dive guides. Three is to stay close to your dive buddy. It's important to stay close during the descent throughout the dive because things can go wrong from the start. If I had stayed with Mac during the descent, we could have corrected the malfunction before it even became a problem. Now we always descend together. Another is to know your buddy. If you're diving with a new buddy, make no assumptions about them. Regardless of their diving experience, Mac's natural snorkeling ability was apparent, so I assumed he was more comfortable and familiar with diving than he really was. The other one is, be sure your tank valve is completely open. The practice of backing off an open tank valve half a turn is no longer recommended, and, as this incident illustrates, can be potentially dangerous. Tank valves should always be fully open during dives. Another item, smart though do, is dive with Dan Accident Insurance. I have always been a member of Dan. I know that standard travel insurance does not cover dive accidents. I have never had to use it. My dive accident insurance, and I hope I never have to, but I will never regret having it. So, words of wisdom. Certainly good words of wisdom. And now that she mentioned it, I don't believe that they teach that bobbing needle means that your valve may be 
not completely yeah. open. That's why when you do your check on the dock, just before you go down, you breathe it. We always say, take three breaths and watch your needle. Mm-hmm. And if it's, you know, you take two, three deep breath and that sucker starts going flippity flop, uh, like a windshield wiper, you might want to check your valve. Yeah. Well, because I've, that's something that I was trained was to do the three breaths. And I have seen that where I have checked the uh, gauge and then shut the valve. And then when I do that check, you'll see the needle go like halfway down, completely down, and then it doesn't come back up. And that meant that you you, you just put enough air in to check the pressure and yep. then you shut it. Right, right. And, then, and then there has been times where it's either been just cracked a little bit and it does that little windshield wiper yep. or, and we won't cover it in this episode, but if somebody wants to dig it up, we have where I had a contaminant in the line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the spider. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, that that's another one. If you if you ask real nice, that's a good one. A, an yeah, episode. that's but experience. That that that, that kind of did the same thing. Uh, yeah, and and there's all sorts of things. You know, like uh, the the sneaky thing about if you get any air is there's a psychological thing where you don't want to go to your backup because in that particular case I was referring to, I had a backup. But as long as you're getting air in your primary, you don't want to give it up, even if it's incomplete air. Well, depending on how deep you are, let me tell you well, that. And, 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 how, and how bad. But, uh, yeah, because I have yeah. had that, because uh, I'm the old school that I used to all the way and then back it off a little bit. And yeah. I, I had an, an issue at depth where I, I didn't get good breaths. And I looked at my gauge and said, you dummy. And But, you know, back then I could still reach back and turn the little valve and corrected it. But it didn't come apparent until I was breathing hard at depth, and then it became more apparent. But, you know, that kind of stuff can lead to panic if you have not had that happen to you in shallow water. gives you time to figure out, what the heck am I doing? Yeah. Here's I spill water all over myself. Ah. It is a diving podcast. Yes, it is. If you're enjoying the show, we certainly would love your support. If you can't, we understand as well. Visit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Uh, head on over to the uh, Patreon link and, and go there. Also, if you're a fan and you haven't put your pin in the fan map, go ahead and do that. Look for that. Uh, it's somewhere around there on the website. I probably should be better about knowing where to link, but uh, just go around and you'll find it. Um Let's see, is uh, facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed on Twitter at scuba obsessed. Um, you got anything you want to plug, Mac, before we go? Not today. Maybe a little later down the road. Yeah. Yeah, we're getting to that time of the year. We'll be getting some diving in. You know, go if you, it's now's the time to get your gear serviced if you've been putting it off until now. Uh, make sure that you've got your, uh, visual inspection done on your your dive tanks nothing like trying to get it filled for that amazing weekend dive that you've got planned just to discover that they need some time to do a visual inspection on it or worse yet a hydro so get all that stuff out of the way and uh yeah i thought i i think it's that time of the show excellent yeah you ready sitting down i'm ready yeah and this is honor uh, when you 
get to the end, you understand, but there's some uh, popular movies in the theater right now. So this one kind of goes along with that theme. A man walks into a rooftop bar and takes a seat next to another guy. What are you drinking? Asked the guy. Magic beer, he says. Oh, yeah? What's so magical about it? Then he shows him. He swigs some beer, dives off the roof, flies around the building, then finally returns to his seat with a triumphant smile. Amazing, the man says. Let me try some of that. The man grabs a beer. He downs it. He leaps off the roof and then plummets 15 floors to the ground. The bartender shakes his head. You know, you're a real jerk when you're drunk, Superman. (laughs) Obviously, he wasn't in his normal garb. Yeah, a little incognito. So on that note, until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. (laughs) 